Hey, I'm Steve Folland. Welcome to another one. Not just another episode, but another season. We are back with season 14, another 10 great guests to come between now and the summer as it goes out here in the Northern Hemisphere of 2021. This episode of Being Freelance is supported by my course, How to Get Started Being Freelance. So if you are new to freelancing or you've been maybe doing it a year or so or you're planning to do it, this is the course for you. And if you know somebody who fits that bill, then please do tell them about it. Uh, It's a video course and you can find out all about it at beingfreelance.com. Okay, right now let's find out what it's like being freelance for videographer and photographer, Charlie Budd. My coach early on said, don't think about it as a sales process because he knew I had a problem with that kind of language. Think about it as a helping process. You're trying to work out how to help them. And I went, yeah. You have to put yourself out there so that there are always people wanting your services the whole time and you're having to turn people away. I did it as a painter and decorator. I'm doing it now. If I can, anyone can. So that is Charlie, his story coming up very soon indeed. Uh, It's a slightly longer episode, this one, just because... Charlie is such a good storyteller and I enjoyed talking to him so much like I didn't want to cut it out (laughs) I wanted you to be able to enjoy it's quite a ride Uh, so Charlie coming up in a second um Come join us in the Being Freelance community if you haven't already. Over at beingfreelance.com, you'll find a link through to it. Uh, mostly we're hanging out on Facebook, uh, but not always. So if you're not on Facebook, you know, we do do stuff on, on Zoom and hopefully one day in person. So we have the Business Book Club. We do live Q&As. Uh, we have a weekly awards show. Plus, it's just a chance for you to ask questions and hang out and uh, be amongst friendly people. Being freelance can be quite an isolating thing, but there's no need for it to be. You're not alone being freelance. Come find us. And if you enjoy the podcast, please do make sure you're following us on whatever app that you use and uh, maybe leave a review and tell other people about it as well. That would be amazing. I'll shut up. Let's crack on. Chat to this week's guest. I hope you enjoy it. Let's go to Stratford-upon-Avon and talk to freelance videographer and photographer Charlie Budd. Hey, Charlie. Hello. Good morning, afternoon, evening, Steve. Depends when people are listening, I suppose. Exactly. It's probably a very (laughs) smart podcast, this one. It'll adapt according to where in the world people are. Wow. Amazingly high tech your podcast is. What do you expect? (laughs) Um, Okay, as ever, Charlie, how about we get started hearing how you got started being freelance? Well, the really quick answer was uh, I only started in my current freelance role properly when I fell off scaffolding and broke my back on (gasps) Halloween 2017. Um, but there's a bit more to that story. <laughs> it's a good start. I'll give it that. <laughs> if you've got time, I'll take you back till from till the age of eight. Oh, nice. Okay. I I was given a camera um, when I was eight. Uh, obviously, in the, those days, in the 1880s, um, <laughs> it, it was a a proper little film camera. There was no digital then. A long way before digital. And the first roll of film that I took, once I got it developed, uh, I became an instant addict. I can remember some of the pictures that... that, uh, that I I probably had it processed in Boots the Chemist, I think. Um, And I can remember looking at the pictures at that age 
and I'd taken a picture of a rhododendron and a cricket pavilion and a school building, all in, in glorious golden light. And it's kind of quite hard to say this with, with creatives often put themselves down, but even at that age and even instantly, it was clear I was not bad at taking pictures. So you became freelance at eight, or was there more to that? <laughs> I wish. Oh, no. Um, yeah, I'm, I, I was a, a, a photography in, enthusiast, but I, I was also, I've, I've always been enthusiastic about lots of things, about the, the countryside, about academia. I've, I've always enjoyed learning new stuff. So I ended up doing environmental science at university. Um, uh, I did, though, in my teens, I did some work experience um, shadowing a press photographer at the Bath Evening Chronicle for a week, which which was a, a brilliant experience. He was a really old school photographer. But one thing I realised is that to be a photographer, especially as a press photographer, which was the only kind that I really knew about at that age when I was a teenager, you had to be good at directing people. And I've always had a problem speaking. Um, I'm speaking about as fluently as I can speak right now because you're just such an easygoing guy and I feel quite relaxed. Uh, uh, But especially growing up... um, I really had trouble with my speech and I thought I I can't be a a photojournalist if I can't direct people if I can't actually tell them okay can you stand there and I can't get the words out um so I thought well I'll do environmental science because um I was a bit of a nerd and I liked animals and plants and trees and all of that stuff so then I went on to do a master's because I was quite enjoying university, um, but then got a bit disillusioned with academia because I thought it's not really achieving an- anything. It's it's interesting. I'm learning a lot, but it's not actually making any changes. So after a wee bit of time um, unemployed, trying to find different jobs, I ended up working at Brighton Council, as it was then. It's now Brighton and Hove City Council. Um, in the environmental education and community health education. And I worked there for a number of years, which I, I really enjoyed. And I thought I was achieving something. I thought we were making a difference. But I don't think we really were. I think a lot of it was... was trying to get people to do things and people went yeah 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 but didn't actually do them Mm. so trying to get people to change their behavior to be more environmentally conscious to look after their health all that kind of stuff is 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 hard work and we're talking about the 1990s here um climate change wasn't really that much of a thing then It, it was talked about a bit but it 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 wasn't really a thing. So I quit that job uh, and became a wildlife conservationist for a charity. And I ended up working in the UK and South Africa doing that for about uh, 10 years. Wow. Um, I was a humanitarian worker in the Himalayas for about 18 months. So all of that was, was really practical work. And at last I was doing something that made a difference. Hmm. Um so that was great. 
but um, one of the people who who ran the charities was was shall we say um, if I said the the kind of alpha male temperament, so definitely the person in charge, definitely the person who everyone has to do exactly what he says, and I remember. Um, after a few years of of working in the charities, kind of doing the odd photography job at that time. I was doing the odd wedding for friends and family. I was uh, doing the odd print. I I was involved in a photography exhibition aged 18, and I sold a few prints then. So, But then this guy said, um, you're crap at photography. You should give it up. And And... Because I I kind of admired him as a professional, and he was a wildlife photographer, and and high up in this charity, I thought, oh, so I did. I gave it up. Um, no. After a year or two, I sold all my photography equipment, no. um, basically to pay the rent. But also, I thought, well, there's no point having it really. <laughs> So for a few years, I didn't do any photography at all. Um, this was the time before smartphones, so no photography. Um, but then once once I quit doing the wildlife conservation work, which was great, achieved a lot, but very stressful, um, especially with this alpha male guy. Um, so I quit that, came back to the UK from working in South Africa. Within a few months uh, I'd bought a camera and I thought, oh, I'm actually not crap because I started to sell prints within a few months and it all came flooding back. So I guess from that point, I started to do the the odd photography job, just trying to learn the ropes. Um, I sold the odd print. I sold some calendars here and there. I was the official photographer for the National Arboretum for a time. Um, so I, I was starting to get really into it and really enjoying it and realising that it was something that I loved to do. But also, after coming back from South Africa, I had to earn a living. Mm. So I worked as a painter and decorator. And being of, of that type who always loves to learn new stuff... Um, I kept on improving at it and I got better and better at it. People kept on wanting me to decorate their houses and it it got to a point where it was very hard to give up because I was earning really well. Um, I was booked up a year ahead, but it got to a point where I'd, I'd learned so much that I could do most of it on autopilot and it wasn't creative enough. And I was kind of yearning to use the photography and I was starting to get into video at that point. So I had a plan that by 2020, I would quit the decorating, become a photographer and a videographer. Um, But then due to overwork and climbing up scaffolding and not paying attention, October the 31st, 2017, I fell off the scaffolding, landed on my toolbox, uh, and my L1 vertebra basically exploded. Oh, my um, God. 
And I was on my own at the time. There wasn't anyone else there. Um, so I kind of lay on the ground for a wee while, not really knowing if I was hurt, but I, I thought I was probably okay. Tried standing up, which is not probably a good idea when you've broken your back, but I didn't know. So I, <laughs> I, I crawled indoors uh, to lie down indoors in my client's house, but started to feel a bit odd, started to get these odd pains in my legs. So I phoned my wife and went, um, I feel a bit odd. I fell off the scaffolding. Do you mind driving over? So it took her about, I don't know, about 20 minutes, half an hour to get there. By that time, it was quite clear something was really badly wrong because she heard me before she found me. And I was trying to dull the pain, basically, by playing heavy metal on my headphones and yelling. <laughs> so, yeah, that was the end of the painting and decorating career. Jeez, um, um, what a story! Now, out of interest, though, because technically, when you were a painter and decorator, you were self-employed, right? You had your own yeah. business. Yes. Did you have any form of like in insurance or or income protection or like you know all of those things which many of us hear about and then we don't put them because we think oh it'll never happen like did you have anything like like that no absolutely not because um well I, i i suppose arrogance really i i thought that even if anything happens to me i'll find a way to earn um i i i'm pretty good at working through even if I'm ill um, and I thought I was pretty much indestructible but of course nobody is um, so I didn't have any income protection at all so my income dropped to zero immediately um, and my wife's business at that point she was just uh, building up her business so I was the main earner in the household and all of all of a sudden our income kind of dropped by 90% and uh, not a lot we could do about that so i mean so what happened next because clearly you don't just then become a videographer and photographer because i'm guessing a broken back isn't even something that you just bounce back from no, I mean, uh, um, I did actually bounce a bit when I hit the ground, but <laughs> not straight into photography. Although, when I was um, in hospital, I was, I was in, in, in hospital after that for only about three weeks, because the brilliant NHS, and I, I bloody love the NHS, mm, I really do, uh, totally and utterly, um, they basically screwed me uh, back together. So I've got four of my vertebrae screwed together now. Um, and during the time I was in hospital, after I had the operation, which was about two days after the um, accident, once the anaesthetic had worn off and I'd stopped talking about wanting to be a Hindi superhero. <laughs> Seriously, I don't know what drugs they put me on in hospital, <laughs> but I, I, oh, I had the best dreams ever. <laughs> I can't be and I can't be a superhero guys. I think it was because the doctors who treated me were um Asian, so I had these dreams about Hindi superheroes. Uh-huh. Um but I said I I couldn't join them because I had to go back home. 
Um, but there you go. You get great drugs in hospital if you break your back. <laughs> but I wouldn't recommend breaking your back just to get those drugs. No. So, no. so how, how long was it until you were able to work again? Well, while I, I was in hospital, um, I was uh, chatting to people who I knew on, on Twitter and Instagram once I was able uh, and an illustrator I knew from Instagram, she suggested, because this happened at, at the end of October, so it was coming up for Christmas, she said, why don't you do a calendar to try to earn some cash? And I'd done them for family and friends, and I'd sold a few here and there. So... I thought that was a great idea because hopefully I'd be able to do that from home. Um, And so I started to plan the calendar in my head in hospital. Um, Once I got back home, um, I was able to work at my computer for about half an hour a day. So I started immediately on that calendar. Um, And it took me a few weeks uh, to choose all of the pictures out of my art. archives to design it to find a printer all of that stuff I had a hundred printed and I put it out on Twitter and they pretty much all sold within about three days wow Um, so I had more printed um, and then I had another load printed and they kept on selling out Um, so those calendars actually paid the mortgage for about two months, which was wow! What a was, great idea! And it was all just sitting there on your hard drive. Yeah, yeah. So that was very fortunate that I I I already had those pictures that I'd that I'd, I'd already got a reasonable social media following. I, I think I had four or five thousand followers on Twitter. Um, I was going to say, actually, sorry to interrupt. I was going to say, like, were you like putting yourself out there as a painter and decorator, or putting yourself out there as a photographer? Like, who these people on Twitter or Instagram who were following you was that for your photography? That's a really interesting question. I mean, I started on Twitter once I got back from South Africa because I moved up to Cheltenham and I didn't know anyone, and I, I. got my first ever computer this was I think it was 2008 Um, and I thought how do I make friends and I saw this new website called Twitter and I thought that looks interesting Um, and I saw people were using hashtags and that you could find people tweeting in your area so I started chatting to people and I started to really enjoy Twitter Um, and what I loved about it was being able to have really quick conversations without having to speak because always having had problems with speech actually going out and talking to people was still pretty scary and being able to talk to people online was great so I've always really enjoyed Twitter and I didn't even mention I was a painter and decorator for years so I was just really being me I was just being interested in other people tweeting about interesting things being generally positive. I've, I've always tried to be supportive of charity work, of creatives. So 
I kind of grew a Twitter following really from doing that. Um, and then after a few years, started to mention the painting and decorating a bit uh, to get more work. But it, it was mainly just me. It was mainly posting the odd picture. So people knew that I wasn't a pro photographer the whole time, that I, I did the occasional job. Um, but I was just really being me. And that hasn't really changed much. I hardly ever promoted anything on Twitter. I tried, hardly ever used it really for commercial reasons. It was just building relationships. Mm. You've had success with the calendar, to jump yeah. back into your story. Yeah. So I wasn't really able to work kind of... Um, I was at home pretty much the whole time for about three months, trying to recover. I was in a brace for three months. I remember my first photography job because I, I, I had completely given up the painting and decorating and I've even done virtually none at home, which my <laughs> wife is a bit cross about um, <laughs> because I was very good, but I just don't want to do it anymore. Um, so I, I think my first photography job was taking some headshots for an environmental consultancy firm, I think in April the following year. So that was about, let me think, one, two, three, four, five, six months after the accident. So, mm. um, and Jules, my wife, had to come with me to carry equipment and stuff uh, because I, I could just about carry a small camera bag, but that was it. Um, and just gradually I started to get more and more work. But it, it took time to kind of, grow the reputation as as being out there as a pro. Um, I was helping Jules's business as well, doing uh, quite a lot of photography for her. Um, she, a couple of years after that, published a book, so I did all the photography for that. Um, and then she started to do some video, a bit reluctantly. Um, so I started to practice with her, really. Um, and the more I did, um, the more inquiries I got, and it, it it gradually grew. But it took me about a year after the accident to get back to eighty percent health. Um, and I right now I'm about ninety five percent back to where I was. I mm. suppose um, I I still have pain, but I'm I'm unaware of it. Probably ninety eight percent of the time. Uh, which is great, but I'm, I'm extremely grateful, A, that I'm not hurt even more badly than I was, um, but also grateful that um, I'm, a, I'm an optimist and I, I've got a very positive out, out, outlook and I think, well, it could have been worse. So um, <laughs> e e even if it is is hurting even if I'm not able to do everything I was able to do I'm just so incredibly grateful for where I am now it's fine yeah so how did you get those first photography clients it sounds like things picked up off recommendation and stuff pretty quickly but how did you get them to start with yeah I suppose it was really using social media because I wasn't able to get out and about much it was just telling people that I was available it was posting pictures as often as I could but without being too salesy because I've always struggled with trying to sell myself I'm I'm better at it now but I've 
I've, I've I've always struggled with trying to tell people to buy my stuff, as it were. Mm. Um, so it, it almost grew organically, really. People started to, to get to know. I got a lot of recommendations, and again, a lot of that was through the friends I'd made through Twitter, Instagram, especially. But the the Twitter friends I'd made because I'd moved up to Stratford upon Avon uh, for love um to be with Jules and I made quite a lot of friends from the area through Twitter um through attending tweet ups when they were a thing um and I suppose that kind of reputation of being good with a camera because I'd often take a camera to events so people even though I was a painter and decorator people knew that uh I was a good photographer as well Mm. so it was just really through recommendations um and and that still is predominantly how i get the majority of my work brilliant now one one thing i know that you do now i don't know when you started it was you put out an email don't you like a regular email and i think some sometimes freelancers you know we hear oh we should you know we should have a mailing list we should be doing this and then a lot of us don't really know what to put in it so can you explain what you decided to do? Yeah. Um, I know you're supposed to do emails that promote your business. But as I said, I've always struggled with trying to promote myself and tell people to buy my stuff. So I thought, what kind of email would I like? Um, so I thought I'd quite like an email every week with positive news in it, with inspiring stuff. So I thought, well, why don't I do an email like that? I might put the odd mention that I did a photography job or a video job um, at the beginning or at the end. But it will predominantly about people who are doing good things and positive stories. So I started that, I suppose, I think it was a couple of years ago. And I got something like 30 or 40 subscribers. And it's grown very gradually, I mean, I, I probably lose about a subscriber a month and it's up to about 500 now who read it regularly. And it it wasn't ever really a way to get work, but it was a way for me to give to people because a lot of the news that's on TV and in the papers and online is bad news. And I thought, I I wanted to kind of create a little bit of an antidote to that. So on a Sunday, you get an email with positive things in it and a wee bit of humour. And then I might include the odd picture and it's evolved a bit. And that's really how it, it, it started. But uh, quite a few of my clients read it now. And some people who read it have become clients because it also gives people an indication of the kind of person I am about my ethics um, and about being generally positive and liking a bit of humour. So that's kind of how it grew. And even though it takes me somewhere between three and four hours every week to put together, I love doing it. And I love people emailing back and going, I really enjoyed that piece. 
I thought it was really hilarious or enjoyed that because it reminded me of a time in my life. Um, so I get, I, well, I think I get even more out of it than the people who it goes out to. Yeah. Uh, we'll put a link, of course, uh, oh, at beingfreelance.com. I do recommend it, A, to cheer yourself up. But also, I mean, I do, A, I get a sense of you, but I also get a sense of the work that you do because actually as you, you do mention it and there's maybe some behind-the-scenes photos or, or whatever yeah. after your list. And so I think it's a really cool way, uh, clever way of, of, of getting that across. And so do you do you like trade as like your name or do you have a business name? What, what do you go with? That's actually changing. I mean, um, early on, well, my Instagram account has uh, always been the tall photographer. Yeah, that was uh, my Instagram handle. So I thought as a business name, why don't I call myself that? Because it's what I am. I'm tall and a photographer. And people seem to quite enjoy that name. And it's pretty memorable. So that's what I called the business. Um, I am now changing it because 95% of the work I do now is video. So I am creating a new brand and a new website that will be out in June. So... um, Oh, so, okay. Well, this is interesting. So how are you approaching that sort of dilemma then? Are you keeping the existing brand and developing another one or are you scrapping it? What do you do? No, I'll I'll keep the existing brand, but I think over time it will move over towards more being my art photography. So the mm-hmm. prints to the calendars, all of that. Um, and the new brand will be the more commercial stuff. Right. How do you find managing your workload? Um, Because photography and videography always strikes me as something, you know, it's quite intense planning and then there's doing it and then there's editing it and working that around various jobs that come in. So how do you manage your workload? Um, I'm improving. (laughs) 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 But, um, yeah, I... It's very different to running a painting and decorating business to start off with because when I was a decorator, I would turn up at a client's property every day and I would do the work and go home. So I was only at work when I was at work. So in a way, it was relatively easy to plan. I would go from a job to a job to a job. Mm. Um, The only hard bit to plan was not quite knowing when I'd be able to complete a job because problems come up. But as I got really busy um, and I got the kind of clients that I liked working for, they got extremely patient and would be quite happy to wait up to a year. So that wasn't really an issue. But Doing photography and especially video because editing video can take a hell of a long time, and that's something I've I've struggled with. I'm I'm a lot better at it now. I'm a lot qu- quicker now, but especially early on, um, not really knowing how to do the f- filming in a way that would make the editing quicker, I'd end up with huge amounts of content to try t- to condense in into a small package mm. and that used to, to take days and days and days um it's 
hours now, so I'm I'm probably about I don't know if I'm ten times quicker, but I might be. But it it does take a lot of planning, and I am actually trying to recruit now. Uh, I've got a freelancer who hopefully will be starting with me next week. Oh, wow. uh, who will be helping with um, editing on the shoots, doing some admin as well. And I'm also going to recruit an apprentice as well um, because the workload since November has been pretty constant um, and I've struggled to get everything done. I have, but only through putting in, I think I average 58 hours a week, which is not ideal. Mm. Uh, when you want a life as well but it's it's not an ordeal though because I love my job so much but it's just a question of my wife going um are you coming home then uh yeah 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 just just have to finish editing this right I'll see you at home all right and then an hour goes by and I think I really should get home (laughs) so so you're um, not based. You're, you 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 have a studio or an office or somewhere, do you? Uh, my wife's business has a studio, so I've 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 kind of gradually moved in surreptitiously, um, <laughs> and eventually my wife has here. From next week, I will have my own room in in her offices. Oh. So um, yeah, it really happened, especially during the pandemic. Because I used to use co-working spaces quite a lot um, and work from home uh, and then occasionally work up at her studio. But during the pandemic, obviously, everything else was closed. So we go up to work at her studio uh, and it it worked really well. And it also helped to to transform her business as well uh, over the pandemic, having me up there. Mainly to do video, so doing uh, live streams and online courses for her. So um, yeah, I'm. Oh, I'm so uh, cool. Yeah, it's 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 out outside of Stratford in the countryside. So it's generally quiet, apart from when the music teacher next door has a drum lesson, <laughs> and and then it's not. <laughs> uh, uh, um. Yeah. What what does she do? Uh, she teaches people dressmaking and she's got her own line of um, dressmaking patterns and she's got a haberdashery online store. Wow. Um, so, yes. Do you um, think it helps, like, the fact that you both are running your own businesses? Yes. Yeah. I mean, it... it especially after the accident it didn't really help because it would have been great if 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 she'd had a normal job and that regular income um so it's it it was a struggle in the early years but then um her business started to grow and grow uh, and i think she now employs five people and she's wow. recruiting a couple more so it's it is helpful that both of us are in business. It's helpful that both of us are creatives as well um, and that we get along so we don't argue too much up at the studio. Yes. Uh, something else I wanted to ask you about, because you, you know you mentioned the importance of community, uh, a lot of it being online but going to mm-hmm. meetups and stuff. There's something I sometimes spot in your email about cake. Um, ah, is it a yeah. cake club or something? I've, I may have gotten the name wrong. 
But what's uh, that? <laughs> um, that's the creative cake storm. Which, which you can see why my eyes were drawn to it. Go on, yeah, explain. Absolutely, um, it's um, that actually came from uh, a question. Um, someone I know who is a costume designer for film and TV put a question on Facebook uh, aimed at freelancers, kind of asking, "How do you deal with?" the peaks and troughs of being a freelancer. How do you deal with being really busy and then having no work? And then being really busy and then having no work? Mm. Um, And I thought that was a really interesting question. Um, Stratford-upon-Avon has quite a a healthy, creative and freelancer community. So I suggested we all meet up uh, up at a co-work space and have a chat about it. And quite a few people went, great idea. And I said, why don't we eat cake while we do it? And even more people said, yeah, I'm interested. <laughs> um, so it, it was kind of a brainstorming session for creatives whilst eating cake. Thus, the creative cake storm. So creative cake storm. So instead of a brainstorm, a cake storm. Yes. I love it. And so it's it's kind of like your own mini mastermind. You've, yeah. I know you probably loving the fact that you're not remotely using that word at all but that idea that you all get together and it sounds like you throw out ideas and then you help each other pick out over problems or whatever yeah yeah i mean it it was um we had i don't know we had about a dozen people turn up to the first one and then it grew to about 20 people would come every month um not just to eat cake i i hope um and but it's it started to get a bit too popular um i can remember one time we had about 30 people i think and it was a wee bit of a squeeze to get us all in into the room uh even though i did bring enough cake so that wasn't the issue but um <laughs> so i i limited it to 20 um and then of course the pandemic hit so we moved it online um and it's 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 been we started to have it every other week online just to help people just kind of give people give creatives and freelancers a space to talk about what was going on um to ask for advice about how other people were handling things um and it's now every month on the first thursday of every month if i remember correctly love it and w- what would you say that you get out of that um well i i love to connect with people um i came up with a phrase about 10 years ago that kind of describes me in a way which is an extrovert with the tongue of an introvert <laughs> so i've always liked to connect with people to chat with people to help other people to connect. So that's what I really get out of it. It's it's about helping other people, really. You mentioned the fact that you really didn't like sales, but that mm. you've got better uh, over time. So I'm just wondering, what would you say has made you better at it? Um, recently, especially over, over the past kind of six months, it's having a coach. Uh, I decided to get a business coach who did give me some some free coaching sessions at the beginning of the pandemic and they'd really helped so I said okay if I pay you will you coach me 
He said, yes, of course. Um, so he's, he's really helped me to not be afraid of the sales process, but not kind of being salesy in kind of the car salesman kind of thing. Um, but just to, in a way, take people on a journey to find out if I'm the best person to help them. And if I am, then to try to work out how I can help them, how much it'll cost. My coach early on said, don't think about it as a sales process, because he, he knew I had a problem with that kind of language. Think about it as a helping process. You're trying to work out how to help them. And I went, yeah. So approach it from that perspective. And that's kind of how I got through creating a sales process is by calling it a help process. Nice. Change the word and you can do it. You're yeah. good at helping people. Okay, now I tell you what. I always do this thing where I ask for three facts about yourself to make two true, one a lie, and let me figure out the lie. I mean, given the truths that you have already told us, God knows what you've still got up your sleeve, Charlie. <laughs> but still, uh, what have you got for me? Um, I, I struggled with three um so i don't know if it's allowed if i can put in an extra one so ah. you do you, you get four for the price of three aaron draplin did this to me at uh. the end of season 13 so I, I will allow it as long as i know how many of these are true and how many are a lie there's still one lie yeah okay cool okay right i i think you're gonna get this but but you might not i don't know we'll see um okay uh, I once ran after a porcupine, <laughs> inadvertently overtaking it, and nearly fell off a mountain. <laughs> yep. Okay. Uh, my grandfather nearly shot Hitler. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, I made Tom Hiddleston cry. Oh, wow. Okay, yes. And my grandmother was the first non-British woman to pass her flying test at Heathrow in 1938. Wow! Okay, I'm going to start with that last one because I'm presuming <laughs> this is true because actually I don't, I don't see... I can see why you would want to stretch to four because these are all amazing. So you're, so where, where is your grandmother from? Uh, Germany. So she was the first non-British woman... Yeah, to pass her flying test at Heathrow when it was a piece of grass. Oh, that is such a good fact. Is it true, though? Well, it almost seems cruel to make that up if that's not true. There again, I mean, sticking with your grandparents, mm, actually, maybe one of these is a lie because you've got two grandparents in this story. Your grandfather almost shot Hitler. Yeah. Uh, so was he German or yeah. English? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So he, he was, was German, German. Well. yeah, yeah. This was uh, during the war. Um, he was an aide-de-camp of a field marshal. So he would kind of take the notes uh, and carry his briefcase and arrange things. Um, and he he used to have to occasionally go into meetings where Hitler was there. Um, and at one point, the resistance, the German army resistance, contacted my grandfather uh, said, 
will you take a bomb into the room next time and oh blow God. them up? And my grandfather said, no, because I don't trust explosives. But uh, I'm very good with a pistol. So he hid a pistol in his tunic um, and he went to a meeting. But he was stopped at the doors by two SS guards and told to wait outside. Uh, And he thought someone had grasped and he thought that was it. That was the end. But someone had probably grasped, but they didn't know it was him. Uh, So he managed to hide the pistol behind a toilet and he was never found out. But if if he'd been allowed into that room that time, um, (laughs) because it was only that day that Hitler told everyone, you're not allowed uh, your aide-de-camps into the room. So it's only the top brass allowed in. Uh, And he only made the decision on that day. Um, Oh my gosh. Otherwise, he would have... Good shot, Hitler. So yeah. Okay, this is incredible. I mean, I'm starting to get the feel that Christmas round the Bud household, <laughs> historically speaking, must have had a lot of good storytellers involved. Yeah. Now, was there ever a film or book made about him? I feel like I know this story. Actually, he's he's been mentioned in a few books, and I can remember one uh, that was talking about the number of attempts on Hitler's life. Uh, there were. 42, I believe, and they all failed except one at the end. I wonder um, whether I wonder whether I've heard that. Like, yeah, I quite like listening to the History Hit podcast, and uh, so right, maybe yeah. I've heard about yeah. this. I don't listen to the Porcupine Hit um, <laughs> podcast, though. So you were chasing after a porcupine, yeah, and nearly went off a cliff. Yeah, I I was on on a mountain plateau in South Africa. Um, and we'd trapped a porcupine for research. And um, after we l- let it go, we wanted to find out where its house was underground. So uh, <laughs> it ran off very, very fast. So I ran after it. Uh, but because they're quite low, it was having to go in between shrubs. And because I'm tall, I was able to go over the shrubs and I inadvertently overtook it. It then went between a load of rocks, so I went over the rocks, but it was the edge of a cliff. But I managed to stop, and I didn't actually fall off the mountain. Oh my god, this but is like I nearly some, did. This is like Looney Tunes. Okay, <laughs> and then there's Tom. You made Tom Hiddleston cry. Yeah, Tom Hiddleston, famous actor. Is he Loki in the Marvel films? That's him. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. How did you make him cry? Was it his porcupine? <laughs> no, it was actually my grandfather. Um, I was doing a behind-the-scenes photography shoot of a promo video that was for a play he was in in London. Um, and for the promo video, it's actually online. If you look on YouTube, uh, Tom Hiddleston in Betrayal by Harold Pinter. Uh, there's that promo video. He walks up to the camera slowly and tears start to come into his eyes. So he he asked us, does anyone have a story that's really emotional? Um, and I talked about my granddad um, and how my granddad was actually planning to fire three shots, two at Hitler and one into his own head. 
and he went, oh, blimey, okay. So that was the one he <laughs> used when he came up to the camera and started to cry. I am actually stuck. <laughs> because I tell you what, I'm going to be crushed the fact that one of these isn't true. In a way, I guess I care less about Tom Hiddleston, not that it wasn't a good story. So I could afford emotionally to let that one be the lie. However, I'm not sure it was. I think probably that was true. Does that tie into the grandfather one? Yes, it does, which means if I'm saying... So I'm kind of saying that one is... If I'm saying that's true, I have to say the grandfather one is true. Did you then just chuck in the grandmother because you've got the grandfather and you don't want one to feel left out? But the porcupine... The porcupine is ridiculous. But likewise, I mean, you're a guy who fell off a roof. Maybe you very nearly fell off a cliff. Ah, but there's a thing. Maybe you're just relaying one falling off of one thing into another. I'm thinking too much about this. Okay. If if you are struggling to decide, that that's very surprising because one thing my wife likes about me is I'm crap at telling a lie. Right. I really, I'm terrible uh, at it. So mm. I that's why I well, I thought you'd definitely get this because I'm so bad at lying. <laughs> I am disappointed if your grandmother wasn't that person. But I'm going to say the flying test at Heathrow is the lie. And the answer is... Damn it, it's the porcupine, isn't it? Revealed next week. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> no, that one is actually true. My grandmother was the first non-British oh. woman to pass her flying test at Heathrow in the 1930s. She, she had a, a a Swiss boyfriend at the time who was a pilot. So he said, why don't I teach you how to fly? And she went, all right then. Uh, and actually, um, she used that because it was a British pilot's licence that she got. And she used that in 1945, crossing from East Germany into West Germany, um, from <gasps> the Russian zone into the British. She was stopped, stopped by a British patrol. Uh, they said oh, she I thought you were going to say she flew. No, 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 <laughs> no. She, um, um, uh, she had. She showed it. She had to walk from. Well, I don't know. I can't remember how many miles, but it was a very long way. She showed the officer of the patrol her British pilot's license, and um, he went, that's impressive. Okay, you're allowed through. Wow. Otherwise, she'd have been in East Germany for the rest of her life. Well, yeah, and then then who knows what would have happened to your family? Yeah, quite so. That was... Pivotal moment. Okay, so hang on. So the porcupine so, isn't true. No, that is true. Oh my god! <laughs> I did nearly uh, run off a cliff, falling okay, off a mountain, okay. trying to chase a porcupine, finding Tom, out where it lived. Tom Hiddleston is the lie. That's the lie. <sighs> Damn Tom. you, Hiddleston! I even said I could afford that one. Not to be true, <laughs> didn't I? He 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 was amazing. He just walked up to the camera. And then he just started to cry, and it was the most amazing thing. But it wasn't because of me. Well, no, he just he just pictures himself being one of the ten people not allowed in your cake club. <laughs> they, they start flowing. That that's probably it. Yeah, um, Charlie, that was a virtuoso 
playing of that game. Uh, oh. Thank you very much. I enjoyed those stories very much. Uh, now, if you could tell your younger self one thing about being freelance, what would that be? Oh, um, I, th- I think definitely at the time when I gave up photography, um, I would tell myself that not to trust what other people say. Mm. Even if you respect them, it doesn't mean they're right. Um, and it also doesn't mean you can't learn to be a lot better than you are. So I I would definitely tell myself that I am a good photographer, a good image maker, and anyone who says otherwise, that's your opinion, and I don't give a damn. Love it. And also to be more careful on scaffolding. <laughs> <laughs> now... Um, one question you said was an excellent question, and therefore I feel like I should ask it as a question so that you can think I ask excellent questions, is how do you cope with the peaks and troughs of freelancing? Ah, yeah, that is is a really interesting one. And that's, A, you have to put yourself out there so that there are always people wanting your services the whole time and you're having to to turn people away so it's not just being very good at what you do and keeping on improving and keeping on diversifying but it's to make yourself so popular and being clever that you're not just always looking for one type of job or one type of client so it's being flexible being great but also making sure you're in demand the whole time. And you can do that. I mean, I did it as a painter and decorator. I'm doing it now. So if I can, anyone can. Yeah, nice. Charlie, it's been an absolute joy chatting to you. Thank you so much. Go to beingfreelance.com. There'll be links through so you can find out what Charlie is up to. You can check out his website. Obviously, when he launches his new website, we'll we'll put that up as well. Also, sign up for his email newsletter. Uh, and, you know, it, just in the name of this very podcast and what we've talked about, I recommend going and getting yourself a piece of cake and a friend to talk about business with. Um, Charlie, thank you so much and all the best being freelance. It has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. So there goes Charlie. What a start to season 14. You can find all episodes and past episodes at beingfreelance.com. But if you've enjoyed this episode, please do reach out to him. Let him know. Also, you can give us a review and share on social. Go on, be a love. Uh, Being Freelance is made by me, Steve Folland, with writing support for the show notes from Sophie Livingston at Kickstart Content. Thank you, Sophie. Everything else, though, really is just me. And whilst I do make podcasts and videos for a living... If Being Freelance has made a difference to you over the years, you can help keep it coming by supporting on a monthly basis at beingfreelance.com slash coffee. Thanks to all of those of you who regularly top up my virtual biscuit tin. It really is much appreciated. Right. Have a great week. Being Freelance. Being Freelance.